Hey, one more thing before you go. Christianity, demonic hordes of Lucifer, the New World Order, reptilian shapeshifters, and a self-proclaimed prophet. We touch on all of this and more when we have a conversation with an investigative journalist and his latest journey into a unique underworld of murder and an online cult. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Join the conversation as we discuss that thing about being dragged into the light with Tony Russo. My guest in this episode is Tony Russo. He's an investigative journalist who tells compelling stories about ordinary people. It's been Tony's specialty for the entirety of his journalism career, which spans more than 20 years. Whether profiling artists, community leaders, or combat veterans, he has a knack for helping people connect to personal stories. In addition to writing about craft beer revolution, Tony wrote and hosted This Is War. It was a narrative podcast documenting personal stories of combat veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're going to have a conversation about his most recent work, Dragged Into the Light, Truthers, Reptilians, Super Soldiers, and Death Inside an Online Cult, which looks into how one nondescript woman was able to tap into the rising paranoia that birthed the conspiracy theory culture. Welcome to the show. So um, you've got an interesting journalistic career, Tony. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, uh, I've I've covered sewers. Uh, I've covered I've covered ribbon cuttings. You know, I I once wrote a story about a girl who was named after the town that I was covering, and uh, and then yeah, I did the whole the the combat veterans thing. Um, I've done if if it's happened, I've I've written about it. I'm I'm there aren't a lot of general assignment reporters that are just like no, really, I'll write about anything. But that's that's me. That's what I do. It's, just if work. I think it's interesting, I can I can write about it. You can put it so, down. Well, let's talk yeah. about let's talk about a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, um, Union Beach, New Jersey. It was uh, it's about right between let's say Asbury Park, if you may have heard of Asbury Park, mm-hmm. and New York City. So, you know, uh, maybe half an hour out of New York City on a Sunday afternoon, three hours out of New York City on a Monday at seven o'clock. <laughs> um and yeah I I just had a I just had a normal life and I was in hotel business for a while and then I went to college as um an old person I went when I was 30 uh, I got two degrees I got one in philosophy and one in history and my intention had been to be a, a philosophy professor what happened was you know it's I I got divorced and I uh I had to stop going to school so I um I looked around to see what what I was qualified for, because I don't know if you know, but there's not a ton of money in philosophy. Um, but as not. it, but as it turned out, I was a really good writer and I had, I've always been, I've always been a really good writer. And, uh, the, the, the history degree and the philosophy degree helped me, um, learn, learn how and when to do research and how to take things that are really complex and make them simple so other people can understand them. So I was a good fit for journalism. So, and also I was, I had my my children and I wanted to be, have a flexible schedule 
And, you know, as a reporter, sometimes you have to work late at night. Sometimes you have to work early in the morning, but you also have a lot of flexibility in, you can write at home. This was, I was fortunate. This was right around the time where it was becoming kind of acceptable to work. I, I've been working at home for almost 20 years now, you know, um, you, you know, you pop into the office and you check in, but you know, my, my could file my stories electronically. And then when I became editor, I could, you know, I put the whole paper together, you know, in my living room, there was a, there was a halcyon summer where I actually put the paper together while having a cigar. There was a local cigar place and I would go and I would, uh, and it had Wi-Fi, So I would, I would get a cigar and, you know, just smoke my cigar like it was 1930 and put the paper together right there in this back room of this cigar store. And that was, that was really, really pleasant. The question uh, is, did you have the hat with the press? Uh, I, I didn't. I was one step short of that. I'm, I'm more of a flat top guy anyway. I wear the peak caps, not the, uh, not, not the big fedoras. That's my brother who wears the fedoras. Yeah, my, my uh, father, uh, I remember my father took some classic pictures where he put the fedora on and the big press thing in the center of it. And then he had yeah. a pipe instead of a cigar and typing it. It's <laughs> one, one of my best memories, actually, of him. It was pretty cool. So yeah. you... Um, the paper, when you talk about the paper, was it an independent paper? You know, yeah, uh, there was, I've, yeah I, I live on, today I live on the Delmarva Peninsula, which is um, Ocean City, Maryland is is probably, uh, or Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Um, they're vacation resorts and I live, I live in that area and there are thousands, you know, free papers and I've written for 998 of them, I think. Uh, but at this time, I, I spent the bulk of my early career at a paper called the Bayside Gazette. And we covered a very small town called Berlin, Maryland. But um, it was in the middle of like a boom era for the town. So I got to do a lot of uh, really interesting things there. And then from there, I went, I, I ran uh, the business section of a, of a local daily. I've been a columnist. It's one of the things, one of the secrets about, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Broadcast News. Um, with Albert Brooks, yeah. Um, um, there's, there's at the end of the at the end of the movie. Spoilers, you know, everyone's supposed to get fired, and he doesn't get fired, and he quits. And they say, "Why'd you quit?" And he said, "Well, I realized that I'm cheap and I know everything, and they will never fire me for that reason." Um, and that was that was pretty much my career. It's like, well, I I I already know. Once you know how the inside of a newspaper works, you're always going to be employable. Yeah. Um, because that's something that's, it's a pain in the neck to teach at this point. So, you know, there are a lot of either, you know, kids out of, kids out of college work, work around here. And then, you know, old guys, there's not a lot of people in the prime of their careers because, you know, it's here, it's a, it's, it's, that doesn't pay very well. And uh, there's not a lot of upward mobility, you know, there's, I've, I've almost always reported directly to the publisher, you know, it's like the publisher is the editor, <laughs> mm. you know, and I'm one of, you know, even I worked at a daily paper and there were five of us in the newsroom, five reporters in the newsroom uh, with a total of 20 years of experience. And 18 of those years were between me and this other guy <laughs> and then everybody else. It was wow. their first newspaper job. You know, it's just. It was it was the, the the last decade has been a really weird time to be in the news business. And that's why I've kind of moved into independent journalism because um, I can do more and yeah, I'm not they, tied down to things. I think it's really, I mean, obviously the, the, the pandemic has changed some things, but so has uh, the news industry 
in totality. Yeah. When I, you and I had a little bit of a conversation before we started where, you know, I told you I grew up in a newsroom and, you know, I, um, looking at it from that perspective with my father typing on a typewriter and, and then as things moved forward from that, and when I, my first, well, one of my first jobs actually was, uh, working for the same newspaper that my father worked for. Um, and I was working paste up. The, the old paste yeah. up where you, you know, you, they, they my first editor did that with the paste up. Yeah. Yeah. It, and they would bring you, you'd get sheets, you have to cut it out. You have the, your fingers be full of glue and you know, they've got the gluey stuff and you piece together the, the, the page uh, on a board in front of you and everybody bring you different things. And each person that was on this line, you'd stand there at this, like an easel type board and each person had a page and yeah. that, You'd make your page, and then that page would then, as sticky as it was, would then go in to get shot on a camera, which I worked that too. That yeah. negative would then go on to uh, a thing to make the plates, and then the plates would go on the machine. Uh, it was a crazy process. Now, as you know, everything can be done yeah. on a computer pretty much, right? Yeah, and by one person. That's, you know, it's it's the, the last page, the papers that I've worked for, that was, that was one of those things is I could still put the paper together and also write for it. And that's one of the things that gave me kind of like a, a more employable status because I, I could do production and writing and editing, which is nobody, you know, that's, that's something that only old people do, (laughs) you know, young people do either production or writing or editing. And, you know, being able to do all three, you know, made it easier to to stay, you know, to stay employed for, you, for a you long time. You keep saying that O word. That's almost yeah, I know. Almost so like, I, you know what? It's a dirty word. <laughs> no, I just gotta own it. I don't. I don't. I remember when I was a young man, um, how it bothered me when people would pretend they weren't old when they really were, and I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, I'm gonna. We, uh, my Embrace my friends it. and I had like these, yeah, these this pact about being old, and you know my my hair is going gray and it's going to go gray and you know i'm not i'm i'm not going to be afraid to admit that i know things that only old people know because i only know them exactly we're wise we're wise yeah we have the answers <laughs> even if you don't think it's the right answer we've got them we yeah really we, and we're not afraid to guess absolutely exactly yeah it's good it's, and you know the alternative to the o word is the D word, which, yeah, which is not as good, which is not as good. No. So <laughs> having, you know, the old word is fine. So let's talk about in investigative journalism. What, what is the difference between a, like a, a newspaper reporter, for example, and an investigative journalist? Well, it's more of a, I think more of a process than anything else. So, uh, when you're working at like day to day at a paper, you go to stuff, you see what happens and you write it down, you know? Um, and, the idea of doing investigative journalism is more like for long form stories. So I don't do a lot of, I mean, I still do occasionally I freelance and I'll do some, you know, spot news and things like that, but I like to develop stories that are, that are longer, that, that are more involved It's something that's maybe closer to 5,000 words. A regular news story is usually between 500 and 1200 words something that you would read in the newspaper or something that you would read online. Even they usually try to keep it around 1200 words. Um, my, but I like to tell deeper stories that are more involved. So I don't just go to court and listen to what happens. I also 
go into the court records and go into the people's backgrounds and interview people who were either like in this case, I interviewed in the, the Sherry Schreiner story, the uh, dragged into the light. I interviewed people who the police didn't interview. And um, I interviewed people that, you know, people had trouble finding. So tracking people down, you know, doing an investigation as a, as a, as a police officer might, or as a, you know, as a detective might um, looking for more, looking beyond the, 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 the ah, surface. Thank you. Sorry. Looking beyond the surface of the, uh, of the, of the story is, is investigative, I think. And I'm sure, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that um, it's a lot easier for you to get information because people will talk to you as a journalist more than sometimes than they would talk to a police officer like myself. They, people are really, 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 hesitant to talk to uh to talk to journalists a lot of the time because there is this kind of sense that you know people are going to get their words twisted it's a it's a it's a genuine fear and i think in some in some ways for good reason what i what i realized in in the 20 years of journalism is there's a difference like uh a lot of times when someone will say I was taking out of context or they got it wrong, what they really mean is you didn't, you wrote what I said, not what I meant. And wow. I don't know what you meant. I only know what you say. And that's a, the weird disconnect. I think a lot of times between, uh, between the, the press and, and the public is this idea that I can only hold you accountable for the words that you say. I can't hold you accountable for what I think you mean, you know? And right. so if you don't, uh, you know, and a lot of times, uh, one of the ways that I combat that is I'll stop a person. And I'll say, okay, let me tell you what you just told me, because this is what I think. And if you don't mean it, I don't want to get it wrong, you know? And that's uh, something that has to do with being, you know, more experienced. Um, <laughs> and with the, uh, with the, this is war podcast, it's also being open to to learn to just let someone talk and to let the questions kind of come a little bit more naturally you know because this is war which is i'm very proud of it it was a great show i was depressing it was so 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 sad <laughs> but you know you have to give people the space to tell these stories and if you don't, if you want to get the good story, you have to let people wander a little bit in ways that maybe a straight journalist doesn't have time for. Like, here's my question. As you were saying, like, you know, sometimes it's hard to take off the cop hat and say, here's my question, answer it. You know, when uh, one of the interview tricks that I've tricks, one of the interview practices that I use, if I ask a question and it's not getting answered, I'll keep letting them talk until they're done saying what they want to say because it's clearly something that's on their mind, even though it might not be a direct answer to my question. What I have to remember is my question made them think of this thing. And so rather than redirect them, I wonder what about my question made them answer it in this way. Which is a really good thing. I mean, you, um, I've read part of this book already. I've not finished it completely yet. Um, but I, I am about two thirds of the way through it. Uh, and in reality, uh, you're a good writer. I mean, you compel, you. the story is compelling and you move things forward, even though, I mean, obviously I know it comes from fact and that interests me from that perspective, especially my background in law enforcement, it, just the unique twist of all of that 
coming together, you know, it, it yeah. compels me to continue to read. Um, but yeah, it it's I think it's a there's a fine line there. What got you into um conspiracy theories? What what was your interest in there? It was simply it's un I, I wish it was a I wish it were a better story, but uh this is war got canceled and they're like, okay, well, what else do you want to do? And I was actually looking at a different conspiracy that I'm I'm hoping to write about this year. I'm I'm just getting my notes together to start in on it again. Um, and one of one of the, my colleagues at the podcast company was like, "Have you heard about this lizard thing?" And it was as simple as that. And I'm like, "No, what lizard thing?" And so I looked it up. And at first, it wasn't. It was. It just seemed too kooky. Um, but then once I started digging, I realized that the kooky wasn't what was interesting about it, that there, there were real people who were hurting and being hurt underneath, you know, what we think okay. of as just silly kooky things. And, and again, this was, I, this, I'm writing the book in 2019. So it's just on the cusp of the 2020 election. Um, and, uh, it was just a weird time to be, to watch the culture change. And I, as I mentioned, as, as I mentioned in my book, like I finished the, the book was already edited uh, on January 6th of last year. And I went back and I had to add the, the uh, Christmas bomber and the January 6th because they were, they could have been in my book. They could have been anyone in my book. I'm sure there were people who were Sherry Shriner's followers who were in the Capitol on December 6th, on uh, January 6th. And uh, the Christmas bomber, his name was uh, Anthony Warner. Um, he, in Nashville, I don't know if anyone recalls, but in Nashville on Christmas of 2020? The 2020 didn't happen, mm -hmm. 2019. Um, he uh, he blew up a, a an RV in Nashville. And one of the things, and again, Downtown. it was... Yeah, and it was kind of underreported that, you know, he only because it sounds kooky, right? If you and lots of people haven't read my book, so I don't hold anybody responsible for this. But if you had read my book, that the detail that he would go out into the woods to fight aliens becomes so much more rich. Like it's it's like, oh, this because that is what they do. Like they really do go out and fight aliens in in the woods. And it's not just, he's not alone. And that's what, you know, I really kind of wanted to bring home. You know, we think of these people as wing nuts, mm -hmm. but they're, that they're not. They're, they're real people who really believe things the same way that you and I believe them. And they act upon them. And taking them seriously is, is, is critical. You know, laughing at them, you know, people were laughing at that guy until he blew his RV up, you know? Yeah, my just, uh, I have a cousin that just was newly on the job in the police department out there. When oh that, wow! When that took place, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, you know, I had a I had a conversation, and um, the individuals that do follow my podcast and that have listened to it um, recently, in regard to a woman who uh, wholeheartedly is full fledged into reptilians and being visited by aliens. Her husband is in prison at the moment. He was a naval officer, but he got involved in this uh, murder that literally um, it, everything pointed right back to this particular guy. He had two guys roll over on him, but everything, the CIA supposedly set them all up and they were <laughs> telling him to this and then they were gonna create this, this uh, uh, little island 
uh, all their own and uh, it was going to be a safe haven for reptilians and aliens and um to be honest when i first had the interview i almost didn't hear it because it was so far-fetched and crazy you know from my perspective I no, mean, it, I, it, but what what's what's driving it is less crazy you know um yeah at the risk of being too self-referential, I, I describe these peoples as canaries in the coal mine. Like there's, we have a cultural problem that we have to solve. And these are the first people that yep. they're sensitive to it, but they don't know what to do with this information. Like they have to, they're trying to fit information that doesn't, that isn't already part of their worldview and they don't know how to do it. So they have to twist things to make them make more sense. Um, do you know, specifically one of the things that, again, I feel like we, we could talk about more. I don't mean you and I, I mean, we as a culture could talk right. about more is this idea that aliens are, um, not aliens at all, but rather demons. Um, because. Oh, we, we, we could have a conversation in the future all about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's, what's, what fascinates me about it is that. So the reason for that is that there are a lot of, you know, people who are, you know, evangelical Christians who can't believe in evolution. And since they can't believe in evolution, they can't believe in aliens. But since they know that there definitely are aliens, then they must be something else. Right. And so this is that whole idea of folding the folding reality into into your own worldview and making yeah. a new reality. So now no, they're not aliens, they're demons. And that makes sense. And they can live in that world where these reptilians are actually the spawn of Satan rather than, you know, little green men from outer space. Oh yeah. And, we're gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to touch on <laughs> we're gonna have to have another talk, Tony. We're gonna have to have another talk. Yeah, it's gonna be uh yeah, that 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 in itself, but with the conversations that I've had on this particular podcast, uh, I've talked to um angel speakers. And I've talked to, well, there's just a wide variety. If, if, you, if yeah. anybody that's been with me this whole, I've got like <laughs> 149, 149 episodes out, you know, they'll they'll find a variety uh, of yeah. introspects with that. And a lot of it, you know, is uh, a little out there, but some of it makes sense, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, so, yeah, we'll have to have, a, we'll have to <laughs> approach this if you don't mind. That would be great. <laughs> so in regard to... Um, uh, when you were talking about, you had to go back and kind of change some things in the book because of uh, the the stuff that had come out in January right. of of uh, twenty twenty. Um, we're talking about QAnon and things like this. Yes, I would want to. So early in my research, I was, so the the book is is one of maybe six cults that I was looking into, and early on in my research, one of these cult leaders who. I'm not really ready to talk about yet, you know, was claiming to be Q and, you know, the followers who I was, who I was talking to were like, she says that she's Q. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Like it, it was, so it was so well part of the QAnon was so well part of the conspiracy culture, at least I think in 2017, you know, maybe even earlier, um, this this idea of you know this wider conspiracy that everything falls under and what i came to realize was that everything that sherry schreiner the person who i ended up writing about espoused was like a distillation of what we start to think of now as the QAnon 
movement, um, which is less a list of things that people believe as much as, a, you know, uh, an organization of people who don't believe the official story. Like QAnon is more is more an attitude than a belief system, I think, is what is the way I would put it. You know, it's interesting, this, the Sherry Shriner, um, after I had uh, read part of your book and, uh, and what you sent me before we uh, scheduled this interview, actually, mm-hmm. um, it, uh, I, I, had, I had never known she had, had existed before then, but what, right. um, what an amazing introspect into, uh, basically, like you said earlier, a cult, so to speak. Yeah. Um, How did you find her, for example? Why did why did you pick her for this book? Well, she was she was behind what was you know she was behind uh, two deaths, um, and that's why I started looking into it. When so there's this woman named Barbara Rogers. I'll tell the the briefest part of the story that I can. So there's this woman named Barbara Rogers who was dating this man named Stephen Minio, and they were calling themselves a married couple. And they were living in Tobyhanna, Pennsylvania. And Stephen was really into Sherry Schreiner and her ministry. And Barbara was less so. Um, not necessarily against it, but just not as enthusiastic as, as Stephen was. And one day, uh, Sherry um, sent, her, sent Stephen a text message that says, you know, Barbara is a reptilian vampire and she's going to destroy you. And just for context, this would be like getting a text message from the Pope saying your wife is a devil. This wasn't just like a friend. This was, as far as Stephen believed, you know, God's um, mouthpiece on earth is, is what she called herself. So, but, but God's emissary, this is like a legit prophet, like up there with any of the other prophets in Christianity. And so, you know, it blew his mind and he was, you know, he was horrified by it. And so he started, saying, no, 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 you're a false prophet. Um, But then, you know, a couple months later, you know, he was dead and Barbara was holding the gun that killed him. And that alone, you know, is why the story got, you know, immediate traction. You know, there was, there was a, a, it was a national story for a couple days because it's like um, he killed her because he believed she was a reptile, uh, which isn't the case at all. I mean, there's not even evidence of that, but, but this idea that there was this prophet that prophesized that one, that the that the that Barbara would kill Stephen and then Barbara was arrested for killing Stephen, um, that's what really made it like wow, what is this? You know, what is this about? You know, this that kind of extreme coincidence. Um, you want to get an answer on that if you can. Yeah, that's really. I mean, what a, what a bizarre. Um, it, it, to me, it boggles my mind. I mean, obviously, being a cop, I've seen a lot of things. I mean, a lot yeah. of things. Um, but, I mean, I, including uh, a guy that attacked and killed his six-year-old daughter with an axe because he felt, because she was throwing temper tantrum, that the devil was in her. Right. You know, That's, that, kind of that, that happens a lot, yeah. You know, it kind of uh, just far, far-fetched things like that. Uh, a guy... <laughs> I can go on and on about those stories, but it, it's it blows me away that um, people get drawn into something like this belief. What do you have any introspect on what you know what causes that? Why people are drawn to 
wow, I got to believe Sherry Schreiner. I got to really listen to this alleged prophet. Yeah, I think that there's several reasons. You know, that there's a deep loneliness that I think we have to always kind of keep in the back of our mind. Like these, a lot of these people are really looking to connect with people who don't think that they're crazy. Um, so they find other people who believe the same thing. And, you know, my, I think that people, people blame the internet for lots of things. Um, but I, I, I think the internet f facilitates these things, but I don't think it causes them. For me, um, it's interesting because of your last show. For me, 9-11, or the last show that I listened to, 9-11 um, is a bigger factor than I think we give it credit for. I, I broke a lot of people. Um, and, you mm -hmm. know, some rightfully so. But, you know, people of, uh, there were there are people of faith who were, who are really just, they thought it was going to be the end of the world and then the world didn't end and now they've got to figure out why you know the the idea mm -hmm. that there there's there's some reason that the world hasn't ended yet and so they're looking for explanations you know a lot of the people um that i interviewed and a lot of conspiracy theorists you know they really believe that these are the like biblical end times you know they don't believe that uh you know, that there's a, um, I don't know, let's say an asteroid coming or, you know, they don't believe that, you know, we're going to drink up all the water and then die of thirst. You know, they believe that God and the devil are going to show up and have a massive battle here on planet Earth. And they're preparing for that and they're looking for evidence that it's about to happen. They want to be ready for it when it happens. And this just sends them looking for evidence that doesn't exist, but desperate to find some anyway. And so if anybody says, well, I have evidence, then they gravitate toward that person because it gives them a weird kind of comfort to know that they're right and that the world is about to end and that there are devils present in our everyday lives and, you know, that Lucifer is trying to hurt them personally. You know, it, at least that explains why their lives are so awful. You know, the, the idea that they're you know, that they're not great at talking to people and that they, you know, stay away from their friends and family and that they spend all their time on, on the internet isn't, isn't a factor in why their lives are bad. Their lives are bad because the devil's here and trying to make it worse. And they're right about the first part. You know, they're, the reason their life is bad is because of the way that they're living it, um, because they believe that the world's about to end. And it's this weird cycle that is really, really difficult to break. Um, I was on a, a show last year with a guy, you know, the host was a, a pro reptile guy. And it was just, uh, it was just fascinating to, to hear how incredulous he was that I wasn't convinced, given all the evidence that I've seen, that I wasn't convinced that the world was being run by, you know, reptiles. Hey, just a real quick reminder that you can find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts, including YouTube. We thank you for your support and or appreciate you joining us each and every week. Please remember to subscribe and or follow us and tell others how much you've enjoyed One More Thing Before You Go. We would greatly appreciate it. We do have an app available for you free. You can find it in the App Store or on Google Play to download. It is compliments of Superpass, our sponsor.
It will give you the unique opportunity of carrying one more thing before you go with you anywhere that you are. You'll have easy access to the video and to the audio, as well as other bonus material and the opportunity to join our VIP membership, which we highly encourage. If you love One More Thing Before You Go as much as we do, please take time to support us with either buy me a coffee or check out our unique merchandise that we have available in the link in the show notes. Each time you buy a t-shirt or a coffee cup or a hat, it helps us to be able to continue to bring you this program to the best of our ability and expand what we bring to you to inspire, motivate, and educate you. Be sure to check out Superpass. You'll find the link in the show notes for any of your business podcasts or video needs. It's a unique opportunity for your audience, business or listeners to have an entertainment hub directly connected to you in the palm of their hand. Wow. Yeah. See, to me, I mean, you think of this world, especially as we have evolved and the education opportunities that are here that um, people would be, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, People would be more um, intelligent than that. People would be more open to the fact that this is really kind of a far-fetched, um, right? You know what I mean? Ideal of, of reptilians running around the planet. You know, I mean, obviously, I I believe in UFOs. I believe in aliens. I believe in the masses of the universe. That there is no way, anyhow, that there cannot be life from other planets that are here that may be more evolved than we are. And, and that, you know, that, that to me it, it is a possibility that does exist. Um, and I, I, it's certainly not anything that I'm going to discount, but I don't think that Queen Elizabeth is one of them and that she's wearing, <laughs> you know, and that she's a reptile, you know, wearing the queen's skin, you know, on, well, her, on her face. Yeah. See, that, that's, yeah. See, that's a little bit, that's kind of a little bit deep. <laughs> well, uh, but that's the thing, like when you're searching for, I think the question, I think the difference is searching for whether they're here than trying to prove that they're here. That is, that's kind of the disconnect that, that sends people, that can send people down the wrong kind of rabbit holes. Like I've, right. You know, like we we mentioned, I think before we were talking, we were saying being silly, and we would mention something about Men in Black, and you know that kind of the idea that the the idea that there are that there could be you know alien people who are on the planet and you know passing for human or whatever or or hidden away. I don't I don't begrudge I don't begrudge that idea. I that's 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 fine. It's just that they're already running things seems far-fetched. You think they'd be better at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, bring, yeah, although it does beg the question as to why we have, you know, this computer in our hand. Right. Here, that is probably a thousand times more powerful than the one that landed the first thing on the moon. Right, yeah. And it's at our fingertips. And you go, where'd you get this technology? Does somebody just sit there and dream it up and go, oh, I think I'm going to create this. And, you know, here we go. So, you know, I think the opportunity exists that maybe, you know, they may be sharing information with us, but not necessarily running everything. Because I think if they were running everything, there'd be a lot less of... Yeah, um, 
I'm trying to pick my words carefully. <laughs> There'd be a lot less uh, junk going on at the moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it can be. It, it, I think it's the wrong way to go about. You were saying about intelligence. And one of the weird things is it's not so much intelligence as it is focus. Like one of the things I was saying when we first started, you know, when I when I took my degree in history, you know, you have to do, you have to do research and you have to learn what counts as research. Yeah. And we can look up anything, but we don't necessarily that many of us don't have the training of contextualizing all the information we have. Like we see two things that look similar and we, and then we can make up a story that connects the two. And one of the things that you're not allowed to do when you're doing real research is connect things for no reason. Like there, you know, if you have something on, let's say a foot away, then you have to fill that whole foot. You can't just put in a dot at six inches and say that it connects because you haven't demonstrated it. And the bar for the bar for having demonstrated something in, you know, what I would like to say is in professional journalism circles, but that hasn't been true for some time. So I probably, but, you know, so let's just say in, in, in kind of like more of an academic account of how we learn things, you know, is you have to demonstrate everything and anything that's not demonstrated, you say, I can't demonstrate this, but I think, I think this for that reason, you know, um, one of the things I spoilers, um, so Stephen Minio dies in the book on page one, like the book, he, you know, he's dead, but the scene with him dying is toward the end of the book. And I allude to my, my own pet theory about how and why he died, but I don't, I don't come right out and say it because it's so, it's so tenuous that it would be irresponsible for me to say, this is what happened, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, so I'm sorry. So I say this is what happened, and I'm like, and this is why I think it happened. Um, I've been very interested. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mandela effect. I'm feeling like you yeah. probably have. Oh. So I I think that, and now I'll say this out loud, having given this whole this whole story about why this is irresponsible to say, but this is my this is my opinion based on my research. But I don't have any evidence to I don't have enough evidence to support this to say that it's what happened. But I believe that Stephen thought that he was going to um, switch realities when he died. Um, he'd been very interested in the Mandela effect. Um, and I'm sorry, for, for listeners who may not know, the Mandela effect is believing that there's an alternate history that you remember, but you're not living anymore. Um, and I believe that Stephen believed that he could cross back into an alternate dimension um, by this thing called virtual suicide. Which, um, I'm sorry, I've been going on. Let me get a quick sip here. Um, so virtual suicide is, I don't know if you've heard of Schrodinger's cat. I have not. So, all right. So Schrodinger's cat is this, um, is this theory in physics that I ill understand and most people ill understand. And it's about quantum physics. And it essentially says that because of the rules that we're using now to talk about quantum physics, it would mean that there is a cat that's in a box and it's alive. But if you open the box and look at it, 
then the cat will be dead. So it's technically a cat that's alive and dead at the same time. Um, but that's not the that's not the mm. point. The point isn't that the cat is alive and dead at the same time. The point is that our theories aren't working the right way. Um, and so there's a similar thing of, applied to suicide. When you pull the trigger, the gun either will or will not go off. So there's only a 50 percent chance that you die. You know, if you put the gun, if you put a gun in your head right. and pull the trigger. I mean, that's not I mean, that's not true at all. Right. Well, of course. But, yeah. but the the idea was just to illustrate that we're thinking about um, we're thinking about quantum physics wrong. And I don't think about quantum physics at all because I'm not bright enough. You know, so you have people. Yeah. So yeah, you have people who are who are ill equipped to talk about quantum physics, using it to make decisions in their daily lives. And I feel like Stephen thought that the, that he had really good odds that when the gun went off, he would wake up in a different reality. Um, yeah, that's an interesting perspective, actually. It, you know, it it's, I think that in the, what I found fascinating about the book, like I said, I'm not done with it yet. I'm, I have to be forthcoming and honest, um, but I'm three quarters of the way through it. What I found in a, in a compelling aspect of it is you tell the story from a very unique approach and, and you unfold the facts that are present as well as, as intertwining mm. what you're, theory is, which I think is fine because even as a cop, we do that as, I mean, that's how we yeah. investigate. We say, okay, well, do you have means, mode, and opportunity? And you kind of go, well, wherever the means, and you start playing around with that. What, what, what's the, you know, the, the mode you play around with that, you, you play around with what's the opportunity you play around with that. You piece it, you kind of piece everything together like that. I think that we all have to do that in order to comprehend, you know, when I investigated somebody that was murdered, you don't know the whole story because you weren't visually there or you weren't <laughs> part of that at the time that it took place. You have to right. hypothesize what you think took place and then kind of piece that together and then hope that when you present that to your suspect, they'll go, yeah, well, that's exactly what happened. Right. And it makes sense. One of the things that um, it's been divisive. Some people like the fact that I did it and some people don't like the fact that I did it, but I thought the story needed to be told in this way. I want to, I stop every now and again and say, okay, this is what I think. And this is why I think it. And I try to make it, I try to get the reader to put themselves into these people's shoes. Um, and I do that by adding, you know, stories about my own life or, or other things that aren't necessarily part of the, part of the action of the story. But I think, are examples that people can connect with because the story on its own is just so, so it can be so bonkers and it can be so convoluted. And I don't want to, I didn't want to lose people like early drafts, you know, my beta readers and, you know, even my editor, even when I got to the point where, where the editor was looking at it, they were like, this is too much. It's too much crazy without, without explanation. And a list of crazy things isn't, doesn't make for compelling reading. And that's why, I told the story in the way that I chose to tell it, which is almost in the first person. It's, it's as much about my investigation as it is about the story. Right. And that's what, I think that's what makes it a little bit easier to, to digest. And it's also the way I write the best. I mean, all of, all of my stories, even my, you know, even when I was doing, this is war, you know, one of the, uh, so when I was doing this is where I would interview someone and they would say something about, well, you know, the first time I got shot at, it was no big deal. 
you know, it's just people taking pop shots, you know, out in the desert or whatever. And I would stop them and I would say, all right, listen, no one has ever fired at me in anger. I have no idea what that's like. I don't know what it's like to hear a right. gun go off. That was meant technically for me. And you didn't either. So tell me about that. And they would be like, oh, that's right. You know, you don't know what it's like to, but after, you know, after five or six years of enduring gunfire, you, you forget what it's like to be afraid to be shot at. Well, yeah, but it, you get, you get complacent and you get, you know, it becomes a normal part of your life. That's when I uh, retired from the police department, I, we had this discussion. I had to kind of get out of the mode that I was in where I was constantly looking. We'd go to a restaurant and I'd have to see who was cooking and who was, who was there? Right. Wasn't going to eat the place that somebody, which I've done before. We go in and, and we get up and say, let's go. We're not eating here. Why not? Because I arrested that guy is cooking food. <laughs> you, know, you sit with your back to the door. You, you know, there are so many things that you do that are um, inbred within you in, in your line of work or your career that it, uh, it just becomes second nature. Right. With regard to it. It in complacent, basically complacent. Well, and also, te for, so from from my side, I have to tease out of you the things that you don't think are important about your story. And that's why I like to talk to people who aren't used to being interviewed, you know, who aren't already used to the public eye. I like to talk to people who don't understand how important their lives already are, because then I can bring that out. And A, I think it makes for a very satisfying story even when it's a horrible story, but B, it also, the people I talk to are, they're like, yeah, you know, I am important. I did do interesting things in my life right. and I never even, I never even realized it. That's my favorite part when I was in the newspaper business too, you know, you interview somebody and you do a profile story on, you know, on somebody who makes donuts or something. They're like, nobody ever asked me those questions. And yeah. it's, it's good to make people take a second and think about why their lives are important and how their lives are different. Um, uh, Unfortunately, in this case, a lot of the a lot of the lives are are different for maybe less good reasons than you know a guy who makes donuts. Well, although donuts are important, donuts are very important. Donuts are important. <laughs> donuts, yeah, especially from a cop's perspective, donuts. Yeah, no, I can't. Yeah. Donuts are important. I mean, that's a cliche, yeah. but hey, um, <clears throat> this book you talk about uh, being a look and let me try that in English. An inside and esoteric take on Christianity, believers assemble in internet chat rooms to stave off the de demonic, um, <clears throat> hang on a second here, demonic hordes of Lucifer, uh, the New World Order, the cell phone towers and reptilian shapeshifters. You kind of touch upon all of that within the book and within itself. Mm -hmm. um, how does Christianity uh, kind of pop into this and Oh, well, and th this is, it, it was, it was another kind of my, not, not, I wouldn't say contentious, but it was, it was an area that, um, when I wrote the, uh, when I wrote the podcast about it, you know, it was something that we, it's tough to talk about Christianity because you're going to hurt people's feelings and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I also don't want to say that this isn't Christian because it is. I mean, these are these are people that many of them still were going to what we would consider a traditional church, you know, maybe like a Baptist church or an Assemblies of God church, you know, churches that we think of as maybe more conservative, but certainly Christian. And these people weren't getting 
as as I kind of alluded to before, after the world didn't end, they were looking for for a way to understand why the world hadn't ended yet. And so then they went even farther to the right with um, with Sherry Schreiner, who you know claimed to be a prophet from God. You know she claimed to be she used the Bible. She used something called the Bible codes. Uh, the Bible Code, which was a, a computer program that helped her do her prophecy, you know, and it was very much, it was very much a Christian sect, and it drew very heavily on Christian belief, and that's an important aspect because when people say that these people are crazy, you know, we we have a lot of you know many, if not most people uh, in in the country who identify as religious, identify as Christian. But the things, the differences between beliefs in Christian sects are, you know, extraordinary. I mean, I grew up in a household where my, you know, I was raised Catholic and my mother was, you know, Lutheran, uh, well, Dutch Reformed, um, which is more like a Calvinist kind of thing. But, you know, they believed radically different things. And, it was always a confusion to me when I'm like, well, why are we say that we're the same religion? Because we're not like, we, and some of those differences are, you know, uh, I wrote a, I wrote a blog post about this. I, I, I like to write about, you know, religion and belief, especially since doing this story. And, you know, when I grew up, I said to, I don't know. So Catholics believe that Mary didn't have any other children after Jesus and Protestants broadly believe that she did. And, you know, in my house growing up, when I asked about it, they're like, yeah, you know, we just believe different things. And, you know, what I, what I said in this blog post was like, what did they, what did the parents tell their kids in Northern Ireland? They didn't say that they just believe that it's just a mild, you know, when you, when you have bombs going off on buses, it's not a mild disagreement about whether or not Mary had kids, you know? Yeah, it's kind of, it is, <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, when you start looking a little, little more into, especially from from this perspective, with the fact that uh, Christianity, I I'm very careful about how I talk about Christianity because I grew up Catholic, but I'm not Catholic anymore. I'm not, I don't practice. I'm not practicing Catholic. You know, I believe in God, believe in the devil, I believe in heaven, believe in earth, but I'm more spiritual than I am. You know, from uh, I won't dogmatic. Say, I'm sorry. More spiritual than dogmatic. Exactly. More spiritual than dogmatic. You know, kind of perspective. Especially growing up Catholic, it just it there's a whole new interesting thing about that. But I have found that in in those environments that they really um, in organized religion, especially they kind of they kind of meld these creations in. in oh yeah and mold you the way that they want you to believe to kind of, and again, this is a, would be a whole new conversation, but you know, they, they, they help you to um, kind of, uh, well, like this with the thing with demonic hordes uh, going after Lucifer and that the demons and the devils. And, you know, that if, if somebody's throwing a temper tantrum, they must be by the devil. You know, yeah. if, if this is a reptilian, well, obviously it's not a reptilian. It's, it's a demon. It's the devil, and to kind of keep you in line. Yes, and and not only that, but also to to explain away, you know, responsibility in a lot of in a lot of cases. 
uh, I spoke with one person who's a teacher and this person said, you know, when the kids are being bad, I realize that the devil's just using them to get to me. So I don't, I don't get mad and I don't, you know, I don't let the kids get to me because I know it's just the devil. And like, that's not something you say in a job interview for a job you want. Well, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. 100%. 100%. Um, and let's talk about your, how to get over your book and a little bit more about it before we, before we. Sure. Or Absolutely. Coming to um, an end. So here's your book. Um, for those of you that uh, uh, are listening and, and not watching, uh, we'll let you, Tony, take it away. Oh, yeah. So um, my uh, my book is uh, Dragged Into the Light, Truthers, Reptilians, Super Soldiers, and Death Inside an Online Cult. My name is Tony Russo. You can get the book anywhere you can get books. You can get it through Amazon. A lot of times, um, I if you want to get it at a... Um, you want to get it at a local bookstore you can go to bookshop.org and you can buy it from bookshop.org and like they'll give credit to your local bookstore if you're if you're as as it looks like some places are going to be entering you know at least some sort of quasi lockdown again soon um there's uh if you're if you're not leaving your house you can still get the book i guess is the point and from a local bookstore you can get it you can ask the local bookstore they can order it um and also you can get it from your library in many cases. And if you ask at your library and they don't have it, they can get it for you. And, you know, then lots of people can read it. Um, I've, I've had some success with people, you know, getting the book in, uh, in libraries. Um, also I continue to write about these things and, um, and other things. I have a, a, a newsletter that I call a bagel manifesto and you can get that at a bagel manifesto.com. And it's uh, it's just talks about how belief and culture kind of change the way that we um, that we think about the world, and so it's it's more of a reflection on that. Um, I have a problem with with bagels. I've it's, it's been kind of a running joke that uh, people will sell. I, I'm sorry, you're you're in the in the Midwest, as I understand, right? You're, I'm in, you're in Mountain Time. I grew up in Colorado, but lived in Arizona. Yeah. So there are some places that will sell stale bagels. Um, and the reason that they can sell stale bagels is because most people get them toasted and there's no difference between a toasted bagel and a stale bagel that's been toasted. And it drives me crazy because I don't, I don't eat my bagels toasted. So if I get a stale bagel because I didn't order it toasted, I, I can, and it, it's happened enough that it's happened enough that people talk about me behind my back. Like people don't mention bagels around me anymore. So I, I use that idea that, you know, I have to get used to the way that the world has changed and stop being mad about it. And so I look at the ways that the world has changed and, you know, how I can be less mad about it if I'm mad about it or, you know, maybe an appropriate response. Uh, so far, I've done podcast episodes as well um, about the uh, Mandela effect and about Orgone. Um, those are just like 15 minute, 12 to 15 minute episodes every other week, just, uh, on a different aspect of, you know, of again, culture and belief. And that's, uh, bagelmanifesto.com. Of course, not of course, but my, uh, social handles are by Tony Russo, B-Y-T-O-N-Y-R-U-S-S-O and Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I have a TikTok account. I haven't worked up the courage yet to do a TikTok, but. I feel like eventually I'm going to have to break down and try it. 
I'm with you there. I'm with you there. And just to <laughs> put for the record, although I joked around about donuts, I'm more of a bagel cop. So it used to be a bagel <laughs> joint, not that far from us, that made fresh bagels. And I was there yeah. every morning, that, especially when I was working graveyard shift. Um, Nothing like a warm bagel. Exactly, 100%. Listen, Tony, thank you very much for this uh, amazing conversation. And thank you for presenting this book the way that you have. And, you know, I think that everyone needs to go out and get a copy of it. And I'll make sure that there are links within um, the show notes and on the website, uh, beforeeaglepodcast.com, so that uh, people can easily access how to find you. And uh, we're going to have to have a conversation in the future. I think we got a lot to talk about. I'm always around. Thank you so much for having me. Outstanding. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.